hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. You're on the, the Wednesday episode with uh, me, Brandon. So um, today I'm going to uh, go down another one. I kind of felt it fit with the episode that we, we did recently on the uh, shooter, the Vegas shooter, and also fits kind of in the manifesto that I will finish here soon of uh, Ted Kaczynski. So, and what I decided to go with today was Anders Bering Brevik. Um, I'm just going to call him Anders from here because I'm sure I'm pronouncing most of that wrong because we all know that's what I do well. I, I pronounce things completely incorrectly. Um, it's the Norway, sh- Norway massacre. Uh, this kind of shows a little bit too of how little Norway has of crime because um, this is the... Pretty much when you say the Norway massacre, this is pretty much what everyone thinks of. Uh, the Norway shooting, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, so Anders Brevik, for those that don't know, um, was the, the shooter for the uh, mass killing in Norway in 2011. Now I'm not going to go deep into his childhood. Because all of these, these guys usually have a pretty messed up childhood. Um, but he was... His mother, from the time he was born, um, pretty much even before he was born, seemed to be angry with him and not like him. Um, She said that when he would kick while he was in the womb, that it was a personal, she was, he was personally attacking her by kicking her and he was doing it on purpose um, as a, as in a fetus. Um, She never really wanted him. Uh, there's reports that she was going to have a, an abortion, but she was too late. Uh, all sorts of things. Um, so from the very beginning, his mother had issues with him. There's a lot of reports in his early childhood that he was mistreated as a child, that his mother didn't love him, that she flat out say, I wish you were dead. Um, I wish you never existed. That she quit breastfeeding him because she, as she put it that he was sucking the life out of her um all sorts of issues and i mean we can go deep 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 into the issues of his childhood and everything that his mother did um but i mean he's a horrible human being we'll get to the horribleness of his of his mass killing um in 2011 a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on him playing, you know, World of Warcraft and Call of Duty and all that. And I don't think, I don't think the video games had much to do with what he did. Um, I think it just showed that he had a way of focusing very heavily on things. Um, which World of Warcraft, everyone that played with him or knew him, showed how much he focused very hard on those those games. Um, very right wing, very, very, very far right wing. Um, lots of issues. I mean, he, he did some very big planning for this. And we will get into here in a minute of everything he did. Like I said, I'm just quickly broad strokes over his his childhood and everything else. Because, I mean, we could go deep into all that crazy stuff. But I feel like I don't want to give him as much time and, and talk about this. Because I think he was just born... He was just born bad. He was born missing something. Something wasn't wired in him correctly. Um, I mean, his childhood, he was at one point, his family was 
the, the government did talk about taking him away from his mother, but then changed their mind. Um, his father apparently, you know, barely reacted to him, didn't show any love towards him, really, um, once his, his mom left with him. And uh, completely disowned him as a teenager because he was in. He got arrested multiple times for uh, tagging, um, basically graffiti. He was a graffiti artist and into, you know, music. So I mean, he he had a very messed up childhood, but it doesn't make up and, and explain what he did. And what he did is is atrocious. So. So we'll kind of go in a little bit here and talk about about what he did. Um, he was. We're not going to go into his manifesto, because really his manifesto. If you think Ted Kaczynski's is long, his manifesto was fifteen hundred pages, um, compared to Kaczynski's fifty-four. But from everything I've read about it, it's basically two thing, two different ver, two different things. One, it is copy and pasted from. Ted Kaczynski um, and other people that he idolized and idolized their beliefs. Um, so he copied a lot directly from them. Uh, and he also um, he did a lot. I mean a lot of like basically used it as his um, his journal. So a lot of it really is not just him writing, you know, what, like, Kaczynski wrote pretty much, like, what he wanted to do and then had journals. For Anders, it was pretty much his journal and his manifesto were the same thing. He just kind of kept writing in it. It's 1,500 pages. I haven't read the whole thing. I've just read pieces. I mean, it basically comes down to he, he thought Islams were taking over Europe and we need to do something to stop them. Um... Very right-wing, very neo-Nazi. He swears he wasn't a neo-Nazi, but a lot of his writing really leans towards that. Um, a lot of that. A um, lot of that. Um, like I said, we can go a little bit into it. I mean, here's kind of an article from BBC talking about it. So a 1,500-page manifesto was they did recently publish it it's online it's called 2083 a european declaration of independence so and that it was from anders brevik so he did email this out a couple hours before his attacks so um part of the the tract details the author's personal reflections and experiences during several preparation phases so in run up to his 22 july 22nd attack um, in 2011. Over dozens of pages, the author chillingly and meticulously details his efforts to create cover stories for his plot, to build up his personal fitness levels, and to acquire the weaponry and explosive materials needed. So a lot of the stuff that we know now about what he did in prep and stepping up to this, getting ready for this, is from these pages. So it also sketches out aspects of his mental preparation for the act he intended to commit. Um, according to the Norwegian anti-Islamic citizen journalist website, um, to which Mr. Brevik himself was a frequent contributor, the anti-Islamic citizen journalist website, um, large parts of the manifesto are copied directly from Unabomber, Unabomber Ted Kaczynski's own manifesto with minor changes such as replacement of the word leftist by the phrase cultural Marxist. 
Kaczynski's serving, which we do, a life sentence, and he's not actually more because he's dead, um, which we just talked about. Um, the manifesto begins with an entry for April, May, April to May of 2002, in which the author claims to have been ordained as the eighth Justicar Knight for the PCCTS Knights Templar Europe. The resistance movement that elsewhere he claims has been established to combat the Islamization of Europe. So I joined the session after visiting one of the initial facilitators, the Serbian crusader, commander, and war hero in Monrovia, Liberia. Our primary objective is to develop PCCTS Knights Templar into becoming the foremost conservative revolutionary movement in Western Europe in the next few decades. So that's what Anders Brevik felt. From 2002 to 2006, the log claims the author raised funds for his venture, with 2006 to 2008 spent researching and writing his manifesto. By autumn of 2009, the author claimed to be preparing for the next phase. I'm creating two different and professional-looking prospectuses for business ventures, a mining company, and a small farm. He went with the small farm. The reason for this decision is to create a credible cover in case I am arrested in regards to the purchase and smuggling of explosive or com components to explosives. Fertilizer. In this regard, I create a new company called Geofarm, which might act as a credible cover for such activities. And he did use that. He used the Geofarm as a cover to buy stuff. Um, yeah. So... In July 2010, the author wrote he had successfully finished the armor acquisition phase, uh, including buying a protective case to store the weapons underground in a forest. But it was not an easy operation. The author was plagued by mosquitoes, spiders, which he says he has serious issues with, and underground rocks while he dug the hole, which took him five hours. In September 2010, the author says, I now have acquired a semi-automatic rifle and Glock, legally. I don't have a criminal record, so there's no reason why the police should reject my application. I have now sent an application for a Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle. On the application form, I stated hunting deer. It would have been tempting just to write the truth that ex executing Category A and B cultural Marxists, Marxists multiculturalist traders, just to see their reaction. What a sick man. In October to November 2010, he writes, I have now made my first order for one of the chemicals required for my initiator from an online-based Polish supplier. I will have to order another four to five different ingredients online before I am done. Needless to say, this is an extremely vulnerable phase. In fact, it is the most vulnerable phase of them all. If I get through this phase without trouble, I will be very close to finalizing my operation. I am somewhat concerned, but I have credible cover stories for each individual chemical with the exception of one. Should there be any complication? Fears are repeatedly described in his log. He goes on to say, So what I do when I'm not working, uh, I'm in the middle of another steroid cycle at the moment, training hard to exceed my 92 kilogram record from July. I have a more or less perfect body at the moment, and I'm as happy as I have ever been. My morale is at an all-time high, and I'm generally happy with how things are progressing. I may create an ideological Knights Templar YouTube movie this winter. A video titled Knights Templar 2083 and post on YouTube has indeed been attributed to Mr. Brevik. Um, I tried finding that. Um, I didn't look really, really hard, but I looked a little bit for it. I was not able to find the, the YouTube. I'm pretty sure it's been taken down. Um, yeah. So if anyone can find that, please, please send me the link. Um, I was having some issues finding it. Um, 
because yeah, I'd kind of like to see what he said. He was a very interesting character. Um, sick is the correct word for that. But uh, as for girlfriends, I do get the occasional lead or the occasional girl making a move, especially nowadays as I am fit like hell and feel great. But I'm trying to avoid relationships that was relationships as it would only complicate my plans and it may jeopardize my operation. Um, in November, December, and January, uh, he claimed he was undergoing pistol training to fulfill the government requirement for purchase. Documentation activity requirement was met. I joined my local pistol club back in 2005 for the first time, but I've only sporadically attended training until November 2010. Um, the fact that I joined the club as early as 2005 was a planned move to increase my chances for obtaining a Glock legally. He goes on to take rifle training, this time for his own purposes. A list of ammunition purchase follows, uh, followed itself by a minutely detailed list of other items purchased for his scheme. Um, near the end, in a section titled Social Life and Continuation of Cover, uh, the author explains, I've been storing three bottles of Chateau Crouan 1979, which is a French, French red wine, which I purchased in auctions 10 years ago with the intention of joining them at a very special occasion. Considering the fact that my martyrdom operation draws very ever close, I decided to bring one to enjoy with my extended family at our annual Christmas party in December. He goes on, my thought was to save the last flask for my last martyrdom celebration and enjoy it with the two high-class model whores I intend to rent prior to the mission. After this, the log goes into detailed day-to-day -day entries for the run-up to his attack, including details accounts of labor, intensive explosives, preparation. At the end of the log, it reads, I believe this will be my last entry. It is now Friday, July 22nd at 12.51. Sincerely regards, Andrew Berwick. Justicar, Knight Commander, Knights Templar Europe, Knights Templar Norway. So there comes that Knights Templar again. So he believed he was part of the Knights Templar. So one of the things they remember as we go through this, um, all of his actions he felt were warranted because he felt that he was given the, the okay to do all this from the Knights Templar. So, um, and if you wonder who the Knights Templar are, we did an episode on them a little while ago, and I'm pretty sure uh, Anders had nothing to do with them. But nice, nice thought there. So, um, yeah, so basically he killed, um, and we're going to go into the, the killings, but it comes down to 77 people. Um, spoiler alert. Um, yeah, so he killed 77 people. He is a sick, sick man. And he, yeah. He, uh, let's go into kind of what happened. I mean, a little bit of what happened here. Um, I'm not going to go into great, I mean, I'll go into some detail, but not great detail. This is definitely something that if you wonder about it, you should definitely look it up. So he did a lot of planning into this. So he basically, the first attack he did was a car bomb um, explosion in Oslo. Uh, the executive government quarter of Norway at 325 local time. Uh, the bomb was placed inside a van next to the tower block housing of the then Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg. The explosion killed 8 people and injured at least 209 people, uh, 12 severely. So that was the first attack. And this is, uh, 
this is where, and I mean, I hate to say this, but the ingenious plan that he had. Um, once he set off that bomb, of course, this was Norway. This wasn't something, I mean, not that anybody's used to a freaking bomb going off. And if you've ever seen like pictures or video of this, the time that he picked the afternoon, Friday afternoon, um, everything else, there wasn't a lot of people there. If this had been like a Monday morning or even earlier that morning, he probably would have gotten more people and killed more people. Um, there's a lot of things that talk about how originally he was trying to be, you know, in, in the second attacks, which we'll talk about the second half of the attack here in a minute, on there at a certain time because there was a political figure that he had a problem with that was the, the previous prime minister that he was trying to to basically he wanted to meet in person by meet in person i meant pretty much care kill um but he overslept so if he'd gone when he was supposed to earlier in the day there probably would have been more people that killed plus um yeah i mean there was just a lot of uh, it was later in the day not when he, he wanted to do it so things didn't go perfect to plan but i mean here's the part that was genius about this in a way um evil genius evil in every aspect by setting off this bomb it was a huge bomb of course everybody in norway freaked the mil the the uh military the the police everybody's freaking out they're they're running you know to there to make deal with everyone trying to figure out who did this all that kind of stuff um it was a rental van. He'd removed everything from it so no one could figure out what it was. But luckily, someone had got the license plate before or the tag before he blew it up. So they knew. They they ran the tag, realized it was a rental car and who it was rented to. But by that point, it was too late. I mean, you know, Brevik was already gone. Anders had left. Because uh, he'd set it up perfectly in a way. He'd set it up, you know, with timing. Had the, the you know, fuse to give him about... You know, they say different times that I've heard six minutes is usually the one that I hear the most. Give him about six minutes to where he could park the van, walk away, walk over to his parked Fiat, which was just down the block, and drive away and be gone. So by the time the bomb went off, he wasn't, wasn't right there. Um, like I said, killed eight, injured over 200. So it was a decent sized bomb. So everyone's freaking out about the bomb. The biggest mistake they didn't make, and there's a lot of mistakes that the police make in this one, they didn't lock down the city after this happened. They didn't lock it down right away. So Anders was able to get away. And he got away. And there's a lot of stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glossing over some of the stuff he went over on getting the bomb ready, using, you know, um, the farm. I mentioned it to be able to get the... the uh, the fertilizer, he was ordered half and half the fertilizer that could be used as explosive and the fertilizer that couldn't so that it was, you know, didn't look as suspicious. Um, the other one that he used is one of the things he used for um, part of the explosive was aspirin, ground up aspirin, um, which is quite interesting to go down that rabbit hole, um, but use that. But because I guess aspirin is... Um, kind of controlled it seemed like in Norway um, he was able to he would basically walk around and get it at certain times you know not all at once you can only buy so much 
Um, and he'd do that. And I mean, there's a lot of things that he went through in preparation. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I kind of, like I said, glossed over that, but I didn't want to go deep into that part because I mean, it's really, I want to, I want to get into and talk about the horrible things he did, you know, and give, you know, his victims. It was just horrible. So after that and you know i've i've bounced around from a couple different articles here here um i started off with you know uh, one from the bbc now i'm you know on to actually one from gq amazingly um so on this one it basically starts to talk about what happened after the bombings and now we're getting into the second attack so two hours after the bomb explodes in oslo adrian precon hears two sharp bangs like a hammer striking metal the noises come from the lawn down the hill between the main white building and the jetty where the ferry docks. And this is on Utoya Island, um, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, but whatever. I, I'm doing the best I can. Um, but Utoya Island, it's U-T-O-E-Y-A. So, um, Utoya Island pokes out of a glacial lake called Tirifjordan, 25 miles west of Oslo. It slopes up steeply from the jetty, and Adrian's at the top of the hill near the cafeteria. He is 21, though it's only his first year at the summer camp for young liberals. Already he is charmed, almost smitten by the place. This, he thought, after he arrived on a clear Norwegian day, really is a piece of heaven on earth. So, this is where things get crazy. So, what he did is he went to this island, Utoya Island. Now, like I said, where the, the planning came into this, he had planned this. He blew up the, you know, the van in Oslo and got everyone's attention. Everyone's over in Oslo. All the police are in Oslo. Then he got in his car, drove out to the ferry, took the ferry out to this island, which the only way out there was from boat or ferry or to fly in a helicopter to where there was this camp for, you know, basically the youth in Labor Party um, who were part of the Labor Party. Uh, and that's one of the things. He was had a major issue with the Labor Party. Um, he didn't agree with their immigration views. Like I said, he was anti-Islamic. Um, all sorts of stuff. So he went out there to basically kill people. So kind of a little back to the story. There are three more bangs. Adrian sees six or seven people um, sprinting up the slope toward him. Run. They're screaming. He's shooting. Run. Another three bangs, but Adrian does not run. He does not recognize the noise as gunfire, and the words being screamed are so implausible as to be fantasy. People simply do not shoot one another in Norway. Adrian is not so much afraid as curious. He hears more bangs. Two people at the top of the slope fall abruptly and awkwardly in mid-stride. Adrian steps off the main path, out of the way of the others charging up the hill, but still he does not run. He wonders if he is witnessing an elaborate exercise. If perhaps the organizers are trying to show hundreds of young campers what it would be like to live in a war zone. A blonde man in a black outfit is climbing the hill. He's not hurrying. At the top of the hill, he turns left toward the field where the kids have staked their tents. Last night, when low clouds curtained the mount, moon and stars, those tents glowed red and blue and yellow from the lamps lit inside. And Adrian marveled at how pretty they were, like Chinese lanterns, he thought. Now he's stepping around them, walking backward parallel two and ten meters off to the path. The man appears to be dressed in a police commando's uniform. Black trousers, ever what seems to be a black wetsuit, a vest with many stuffed pockets, and the word polite 
on the right breast. A backpack, he also is carrying two guns, a rifle with an elaborate sight and a bayonet affixed to the muzzle and in his right hand, a pistol. Adrian stoops into a half crouch. He now suspects that he should, in fact, be afraid. But why would a policeman shoot people? This must be a prank, he tells himself. He senses other kids around him, also moving in slow half crouch. In the middle distance, he sees a girl coming out of the shower. She's wearing gray sweatpants and a gray sweatshirt and a UF stenciled on it. Apparently, she did not hear the bangs or the screaming while she was in the showers because she's walking calmly along a path toward the man with the guns. The distance between them closes. She's only a few feet from the man when she stops, tenses, looks to Adrian like she senses something is wrong, like she wants to run. The man raises his right hand. He shoots her in the head. The girl crumbles to the ground. Adrian thinks it looks nothing like it does when someone gets shot in the movies. The man stands over her, fires once more. Her body jerks. Adrian runs. So this is the, you know, like I said, that, that GQ article and a great article um, written by Sean Flynn for GQ um, that's talking about kind of the, the beginnings of this massacre. And this is pretty much what happens. He walks in. He's wearing a police uniform. So, of course, the kids see him, and you, I mean, why, why run from the police? Um, well, I mean, they must be there to protect us. And a lot of these labor youth people, party members, whose parents were part of the, the parliament and were probably at, you know, the bombing in Oslo, so they knew it had happened, so it would make sense that they would send a police officer there to protect them. So a lot of them were thinking that. And this is one of those things that he uses quite a bit throughout um, the, the, whole, uh, the whole thing. The, the, the whole shooting. And it's, it's horrifying. Just horrifying of everything he does. Um, and how many... He, he ends up killing. It's, yeah. Yikes. All right, so we'll go a little bit more into this. So at 4.30 p.m., the kids on Utoria pack in the cafeteria for a meeting. They are wet from the rain, and the air inside is moist and hot. They now know only that there has been an explosion in Oslo, and they're at once frightened and confused. This is little Norway. Things don't explode. Monica Bessy does her best to calm every uh, several hundred kids. She's 45 years old and the island manager, a job she's held for 20 years. Everyone in the group and probably everyone who's ever been there knows who she is. They call her Mother Yutoya, and she's trying not to be maternal, or trying now to be maternal and comforting. She announced that the rest of the day's activities have been canceled and that the ferry will run only as needed instead of every hour. Also, large screens will be reacted to view the Prime Minister's press conference. We are safe, she tells the kids. We are in the safest place to be. Um, Adrian, this is before every, the shooting, so we're, we've stepped back a little bit. Adrian follows her to the main building. He wants to be useful. He offers to buy fizzy drinks and snacks for the staff, getting the screen set up, and he leaves to go back up the hill to the commissary. His mother calls as he steps outside. She's in the native Poland visiting family. Both of Adrian's parents are from Poland. They fled during the crackdown of the Solidarity Movement, afraid they, afraid they would be arrested with the other leftists. His parents are one reason Adrian is involved with the AUF, which is pro-immigrant. My parents did good. They had a future here, and I have a good future. Why kick them out? 
Adrian lights a cigarette on the lawn. His mother has seen the news about the bombing in Oslo, which is being televised across the planet. She wants her boy to go home. No, I'm not going home, he tells her. We're in the safest place in Norway. Scary, isn't it? I mean, they think they're safe. And then he comes walking up. The, the, the Walking up and just starts shooting. Oh, scary. Um, there's so much more. I can go into so many stories of the, the things, the way that he just walked up and walked around the island. There's so many reports from people and children. Um, most of the people on this island were between the ages of pretty much like 13 and 21. Um, they were teenagers. And he just walked around the island for quite a bit of time. Um, quite a bit. They say, I've heard anywhere between an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half um, is how long he spent walking around the island. Um, just picking people off. Um, it's, oh, it's insane. So, um, the police emergency lines in the north of Berskjord district start ringing just before 5.30 p.m. on July 22nd. There are only four officers on duty in the entire district, which is headquartered 10 miles north of Utoya in the little city of Hennefos, and the calls come faster than the operator can answer. The senior officer, a sergeant named Hekon Havel, has been watching news of the Oslo bombing and waiting for his shift to end. He picks up a line. There's a guy in a police uniform, a hysterical voice tells him, walking around Utoya shooting people. Hakan does not believe this. He has worked in North Buskered for eight years and he's never been to Yatoya because there's never been any need. Also, police in Norway do not shoot people. This is a sick joke, he thinks, but the phone keeps ringing. Phones are ringing in South Buskered and in Oslo too. He realizes very quickly this is not a joke. So, already commanders are racing from Oslo. Hakon sends two of his officers to the ferry landing and he heads behind the station with another man to hitch the red police boat to the back of a Volvo. So, I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, there's only a couple officers there. And like we said, most of the officers are back in Oslo dealing with everything that's happening there. He walks around the island shooting people. The biggest thing is the scariest thing. Um, like I said, you do some research into some of the stories. I could go in. I, we could be here for days talking about some of the stories from the survivors and all that. And I can keep reading all this stuff or just kind of, you know summarize most of it um he walks around the island he uses the fact that he's in a police uniform and from everything that people have said and his police badge that he had hanging from his neck um that everything looked very very realistic uh he would walk around the island and basically he'd even co you know coax kids out um there's a story that i read about 13 people he killed in the cafeteria by bringing them in and saying hey come in here i'll protect you everything will be great he got them in there got them all huddled together and then turned around and shot them all and this is what he would do he'd walk around the woods where a lot of them were hiding and get them say hey i'm a police officer you know i'm here to save you i'm here to help you i'll protect you come on out and then when they walk out of the woods he'd just pick them off horrible horrible and the worst part in a lot of the stuff that he did where a lot of killers when they do stuff like this and go on spree kills like this they shoot people and move on he didn't he would actually people because people play dead 
because that's one of the things you always hear. Play dead because they'll just move on. He didn't. He would walk up to anybody who was down and pop them in the head. Just to ensure, to make sure that they were really dead. Horrible, horrible stuff. Um, and you'd hear stories from people like this all the time. There's a lot of survivors that somehow survived. This is one kid um, that I was reading about five times. He was shot five times, twice in the head, and somehow survived this. Spent six weeks in a coma. Um, but so many that didn't. He killed eight people with a bomb. He killed 69 on the island. Um, there was kids and other adults trying to get away who tried to swim away. The water was too cold. They'd go out there. They'd start to freeze and have to turn around. And he sat on the beach picking them off. Um, there's video and pictures you can find of one of the like helicopters flying over during this happening and like basically capturing some of it where it just looks like people are practicing swimming but really he's he's picking them off as they swim uh there's reports of one of the kids that i think was 11 who basically he his father was one of the security guards who was one of the first people that brevix killed um who there's a report that basically the kid went face to face with him and he just basically begged for he said you already killed my father why are you going to kill me now and brevix just turned and walked away Another one where he saw one of the kids that was blonde hair and blue eye and said, oh, you're one of the team, and walked away. Um, a lot of weird, weird stories. You know, um, horrible, horrible thing that this man did. Uh, walked around killing them all for over an hour. An hour that he was doing this. And when the police, he even called the police, and I've heard two different things. I've heard one they called the police from a phone that he'd removed the SIM card, and another one where he picked up one of the kids' phones from the kids and called the police and basically said, uh, hey, this is who I am. I'm on Utoya. I'm killing, killing everybody. Um, I want to surrender, and then hung up. And then he called a couple times. Um, doing this and then even while he's on the phone though they said while he's on the phone talking to them they could still hear him killing people and when the police showed up he basically surrendered and gave up and they arrested him because uh, he had a three-pronged attack one was blow up the you know blow up parliament then go hit them and this is what he said he's going to hit them where it hurts and take away their children Go kill the kids. And then he was going to go to court. And in court was going to basically, you know, give out his manifesto and give his speech and all of that stuff. Um, so that was his plan. So he, he made sure that he did not die, that he lived through this. Um, as soon as the police showed up and said, hey, you know, put down the guns, he put down the guns and gave up. Horrible, horrible, horrible human being. So he gave up. They interviewed him there. Um, he basically, one of the other things that he said, uh, as he was running around shooting them, he was screaming, uh, you're all going to die, you little Marxists. Um, or something too, very close to that. I've heard a couple things. Um, very close. That you're going to die, you little Marxists. I'm going to kill you all, you little Marxists. 
um, different things like that, um, that he was yelling. But at the same time, they said it wasn't like yelling in anger, that he was just yelling at them. Um, but he was very calm. So, very interesting. Very, very scary. Um, on what this guy did. Very, very scary. So, he gets caught, taken back to, you know, taken in. He goes to court. They try and say that he was insane. Um, of course, they're proved that he wasn't insane. He was. He knew what he was doing. He was just an idiot um, and a horrible person. Um, they basically narcissist, like pure narcissist is what a lot of people the, the way that they describe them. One of the things that I, I listened to or, you know, read in a couple of, saw in a few places was they talk about how narcissists, like we're all narcissists in some partial way. Like in some way there is some little bit of narcissism in all of us. But it's very small amounts of narcissism in a lot of us. But some people like Brevik are pure, pure narcissists. 100% narcissist, all about him. Um, horrible, horrible, horrible person. Uh, yeah, so he goes to court, goes through all that. They find him guilty, of course, thankfully. Um, he doesn't feel that he killed anyone. He executed them with the permission of the Knights Templar because they were traitors, as we said before. A, B level traitors. So they died because they were traitors and he executed them and he did his job. Um, horrible, horrible fact that he even believes that. Just insane that he'd even believe that. Um, so after the shooting spree, of course, he was uh, taken to court. In court, he was found guilty. You can go deep into the court. Once he walked in, I mean, he immediately like did the 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 Nazi salute to the court. Um, all of that. Uh, then was his sentence, which as Americans, we're going to like, oh my God, that's it. He got 10 to 21 years because that's the max that they can give in uh, Norway. There's a lot of European countries that actually have this kind of rule. 10 to 21 years. But at the end of that 21 years, it's not an immediate like, You've done your sentence, go home. They can basically determine that he is still a danger to society and add another five years and then another five years indefinitely. So it just basically means that after 10 years, he gets to apply for parole. And after 21 years, there has to basically be a trial in a sense, at least this is my understanding of it, there's a trial to basically determine whether it's safe to release him into society or if he should be kept in jail for another five years. And then they can keep him in jail that way indefinitely. So hopefully he stays in jail forever. Um, he's been in jail for 10 years, or 11 years now, because he was convicted in 2012. Um, in 2001, though, he tried to get parole, but even before that, this is my, f just shows what a narcissist is, the fuck he is. Um, I know I don't swear a whole lot, but I had to. Um, he, he's repeatedly sued 
the Norwegian government for um, human rights violations. Yeah, he killed 77 people. And he's going to sue for human rights violations. Um, this is the one thing a lot of people don't understand too. Norwegian prisons are so much nicer than ours. He is in solitary. He has been in solitary since he was convicted in 2012. The only people he can visit, um, his mom would visit him until she died. And pretty much he gets to talk to the, the prison guards. That's it. Nobody else really wants to talk to this guy. Don't know why. Um, his dad hasn't talked to him since he was a teenager. And yeah, wants nothing to do with him. And said as far as he's concerned, he's dead. But he is sued multiple times for human rights violations because of, as he puts it, um, he, he is not, he's not being taken care of um, because he doesn't get a right to communicate. He, he only has, when I, and this may be upgraded now because at the first time that he filed, um, it was because of one that they were putting handcuffs on him too many, too often. They would come in and do searches and check to make sure he's like still alive and interrupt his sleep. Um, he only had a PS2 and not a P. They didn't upgrade him to a PS5 or PS3. Um, which why in the hell does he even have a PS2? So this is this is his his prison cell, prison quote unquote prison cell is actually three rooms, one is sleeping quarters with a TV and all that. Another one is one with a computer um, and I believe that's where the PlayStation 2 is. And a third room that has like a workout room. That's nicer than my first fucking apartment. And this is what this guy gets. Um, yeah, so insane. So that's his human rights violations. Um, he was woken up too often cuffs put on him every time someone came to see him which was just just demeaning uh his coffee wasn't hot enough they microwaved his food uh he had to use plastic utensils and he didn't get to talk to his sympathizers um you killed 77 people 77 people uh you should have got an eight by ten with a big big roommate that whooped your ass every day i mean this is insane that, that that's his human rights violations one court actually agreed with him and then another court was like yeah no this is bullshit and then a third court the supreme court was like we're not even going to look at this case because this is stupid so then on top of that, recently in 2021, he was up for parole because it had been 10 years. Um, so he did change his name, by the way, in 2017 to Fjotolf Hansen, F-J-O-T-O-L-F Hansen, which I couldn't find anywhere else. But someone, one of the things that I read said that the, the Fjotolf is old Norwegian for idiot, which makes sense. Um, so during an hour-long speech at the hearing for his parole, um, Brevik flashed a Nazi salute 
He said he'd put violence behind him, offering to give up far-right politics and live abroad if he were released. Um, he said, Today I strongly disassociate myself from violence and terror, said Revik. I hereby give you my word of honor that this is behind me forever. Brevik also attempted to disavow responsibility for the massacre he perpetrated, claiming he had been radicalized ahead of the attack, a claim which was rejected in the aftermath of his killings when he claimed he had been recruited as a commander in a far-fetched conspiracy involving a secret Christian military order plotting an anti-Muslim revolution. Which, by the way, that was the meaning of the name of his manifesto, was that we were supposed to have a revolution that ended in 2083. According to his lawyer, Brevik is seeking to call only one witness per Oberg, a Swedish neo-Nazi. Despite the gravity of his crime, Brevik, 42, is entitled under Norwegian law to apply for a parole after serving a decade in prison of his 21-year sentence and can reapply each year for a parole hearing. Um, appearing on the first day of the hearing in a black suit and gold tie in his first public appearance in five years, Brevik entered the court with a white supremacist message attached to his lapel and pasted on his briefcase. Brevik was led into the hearing without handcuffs by officers clutching a sheet of papers. Then, in the opening presentation by the state prosecutor, Brevik held up the message on his briefcase during a reprimand from the court. Few observers in Norway believed Brevik had any realistic prospect of being released following the hearing. Um, instead, voicing their concerns, he would use the occasion to broadcast his extremist views, which basically is what it came out to be. He ended up being basically the only thing that ended up was bringing up old runes and him being able to talk about what he did and make himself seem big. So families of the victims and survivors had feared Brevik could inspire like-minded ideologue, ideologues and grandstand his extreme views during the hearing. The only thing I'm afraid of is he has the opportunity to talk freely and to convey his extreme views to people who have the same mindset, said Lisbeth Christine Reinerland, who heads a family and survivor support group. Uh, since being in prison, Brevik has continued to try and represent himself as a far-right European leader, attempting to rally support for his views. He's been trying to start a fascist party in prison and reached out by mail to right-wing extremists in Europe, and the U.S. prison officials seized, or sorry, in the Europe and U.S. prison officials have seized many of those letters, fearing Brevik would inspire others to commit violent acts. Which is another thing that he put into his anti or his human rights violations. They keep taking his his letters. Opening the proceedings, Holda Kolsadurter. A prosecutor for the Norwegian state chronicled the murders Brevik committed and told the court that the hearing was not related to Brevik's prison conditions, but the danger Brevik would pose should he be released. Carls Dottir, who started the hearing by stating the conditions of Brevik's imprisonment, told the court the main topic here is the danger associated with release. Among commentators writing ahead of the hearing was Oystein Mili, one of the Norwegian tabloid VG. Usually I do not predict the outcome, but this time I am sure, as one can be, he will not be released. From what we know, there is little indication that Brevik has moved anything when it comes to his position and that there is zero remorse to be found. So, which, yeah. So another person, he has not changed much after 10 years in isolation in prison, the terrorist with 77 lives on his conscience. He doesn't have a conscience, so I don't know how they could say that. He doesn't have any. Um, so that's Anders Brevik. Go down the rabbit hole. Look a little bit more into this. He was... His planning... His ability to plan this was... A lot. 
there was a lot into this. He didn't just, you know, suddenly decide to go do this. He spent years planning this, how to build the bombs, everything else, um, the ways to get some of the chemicals that he wasn't able to get, how to get the guns, both legally and illegally, um, all sorts of things that he went through. Um, like I said, I could have done probably three episodes just on his planning. But the scariest part is 77 people. 77 people, 69 of those, basically on, I mean, the, the only way I could equate this really, like, into terms of, like, for me, would be, like, this, this was basically scout camp, but it was scout camp for, you know, the, the labor party, um, these were just kids, kids, and he walked around in a police uniform and shot them. Sick, sick bastard. Sick. Um, I hope he never sees, he never gets out of jail. I, I hope no. And it, it just irks me to know that he's in such good conditions in jail. That, yeah. I know a lot of people really talk about how horrible we are to our prisoners here in the U.S. and everything else. Because we don't have the conditions like they do there. But really, really, he's got a at that point had a PS2 and he was crying because he didn't have a PS3 I would, I would hate to know what he has now I would hate to find out what he has now because that's just ridiculous that he would be even be allowed to have any of that one of his other complaints was they don't let him have kids games you're lucky you get any games you should be in prison staring at a wall not playing video games not doing any of that that is insane that that's what you get. Insane. So yeah, that's that's Anders Brevik. Um, a quick rundown, um, an overview of him. Horrible, horrible human being. I'm not even sure how to call him a human being. Definitely look more into it. So, I mean, we aren't the only ones that have these kind of attacks. Um, it's insane, though, that, that this happened. So yeah, look into that one. Check it out. Uh, thank you all for listening. We will talk to you again this weekend on the next episode.